John chapter 17. We're starting a little mini-series, so over the next three weeks, we're going to go through all of Jesus' prayer in John 17, and I think it's going to be really significant for us. So, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Amen. Um, I wanted to focus our hearts at the start of this year on prayer, on Jesus, on seeking after him. Um, we decided as a church up in Mill Hill East, where I pastor, that we would start this year with a week of prayer and fasting and drawing near to God and kind of hitting the big reset button uh, and saying, God, we, we put you right at the center of all that has been before. We see your hand working in the trouble and in the triumph. And actually, in all that is to come, we say, God, you be the center, you lead, you guide. Um, but we thought, both there and here, that it would be really helpful to, um, to maybe focus our prayers and our thoughts around the prayer of Jesus. Um, one of the biggest reasons for doing this is that uh, in my church up in North London, we spent a long time praying for Jose Mourinho, that God would fill him with his spirit and empower him and he'd overcome some of the troubles he was facing at Manchester United. And then he lost his job. And I thought, do you know what? My prayers aren't working this isn't going anywhere. Um, actually, I'm much happier now. I love Solskjaer. So I thought, well, maybe I need to learn how to pray again. And what a better place to go than Jesus' prayer. We just sung what is often called the Lord's Prayer. Well, that's not the Lord's Prayer, is it? That's the disciples' prayer. That's how Jesus teaches us to pray. This, John chapter 17, is the real Lord's Prayer. Uh, you might see your heading in the Bible. Um, the high priestly prayer is sometimes what it's called. I'm not totally convinced that's a great name for it. And we're going to dig into why. So we're just going to go through this verse by verse. And then I've got two really simple things to say at the end. And then we'll worship God and we'll, we'll center our lives on him. Does that sound like a plan? Great. First of all, when Jesus had spoken these words. So we're coming after something here. So in the Gospel of John, uh, the first half of the Gospel is Jesus going around and doing these incredible signs and offering this profound teaching where he says, I am this, I am this, I am this. And we're going to dig into that a little bit more. Um, but this turning point comes when Jesus heals Lazarus, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And that seems to be the trigger in the Gospel of John for Jesus' enemies to say, that's it, we, we need to kill this guy, we need to take him out. So Jesus goes from raising Lazarus from the dead, he's then anointed at Bethany, um, he's anointed, and it's this sense of actually he's anointed for his burial as this perfume is poured upon him. And then we have Jesus being welcomed into Jerusalem with the palms. And then we have this incredible thing. In the synoptics, it tells the story of Jesus entering and being, being waved in by the crowds, crying out Hosanna, and then Jesus clears the temple. In John, Jesus comes into the temple and then he stands up at the Passover and offers some of the most profound teaching that we see Jesus give. And it's controversial teaching. It's teaching that is hard for those who, 
who are outside of the kingdom to accept. Jesus is radically reshaping their idea of who God is and what he is doing. And Jesus starts to teach about the Holy Spirit coming, about how he must go, that he comes. And then we come into this beautiful passage, which I love. It's probably my favorite few chapters of the Bible, where basically in the synoptics we have the story, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, called synoptic because they have one view. They tell the story in a similar way. In John, um, he tells the story a slightly different way. So in the synoptic gospels, Jesus has communion with his disciples. He has the Last Supper. But John tells the story slightly different. He gives us more detail of what Jesus says. And actually, Jesus welcomes his disciples in and he washes their feet. He washes their feet. He talks about the betrayal of Judas around this meal table. He talks about Peter falling away around this meal table. And then there's this beautiful, intimate teaching where Jesus says, remain in me, remain in my love. He's talking about this sense of him drawing who he is from the Father and the Father being found fully within the Son and actually says, disciples, you have the same. Be found in my love and I will be found in you. So this is the context of what we're talking about. This is Jesus with his disciples knowing that outside this room is an angry world that wants to kill him. Knowing that actually the destiny of the cross is outside this room. So he sat with his disciples and this is his chance to share with them. But then he comes and he prays. It says he lifted up his eyes to heaven. We have loads and loads of times throughout the Gospels when we're told that Jesus prays. But most of the prayers that we have recorded are one word, one line. And actually this is our, our extended prayer when we hear Jesus praying to the Father. We hear the words that he said. And there's a sense, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Is that where, where God is? There's a sense, actually, it's not that so much that he looked up. It's this sense that prayer, first and foremost, is an orientation to God. It's us turning ourselves to God. It's us focusing on the God who is spirit. Um, it's often been said, it's often been quoted as a Smith Wigglesworth quote, a famous Pentecostal preacher. You know, I never pray for more than five minutes, but I never go more than five minutes without praying. And I think that sounds good, but I'm not convinced that that's necessarily true. And actually the people who I've met who have the prayer lives that seem to cultivate an intimacy and a belonging to God are people who set apart time, who orientate themselves, who don't just say a quick prayer here and there, but who carve out time in their diary, who make it a priority to turn their eyes to heaven and to focus on God and say, actually, I'm gonna set my alarm clock early. I'm gonna get away, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna have times and seasons of intensive prayer. So Jesus prays, he intentionally turns towards God and he says, Father, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. Just like the Lord's Prayer, there's a significance that Jesus says, address God as Father. That's something unique to Christianity, you know. Even within Judaism, it isn't common to refer to God as Father, and particularly to refer to him as Father in prayers. In fact, there are some Jewish rabbinical prayers where the prayers explicitly say, God, if you are a father, treat us this way. But if you are a king, treat us this way. And it kind of hedges its bets. But Jesus reveals God to us as father. I think that's why the term high priestly prayer maybe isn't quite right. Because this isn't a formal high priestly prayer. This is Jesus, the son, speaking to the father. This is an intimate prayer. Not a high prayer, but a close prayer. That language is unique it would be alien to Islam to call God Father. 
The closest we have is some of the avatars within Hinduism ask that individual mortals would refer to them as father. But it isn't a common thing. This is a unique revelation that we have here, that God is father. And actually the significance, father, that hour has come, facing death, facing pain, facing trial. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as we hear it, in other accounts, Jesus prays, take this cup from me. And here Jesus says, the hour has come. He leans into his belonging. At his moment of, of biggest struggle, facing the darkest night, he leans into Father, the hour has come. Let's go together. And then Jesus carries on. Glorify your son that your son, that the son may glorify you. Glory is a bit of a word, a funny word, a word that we only use in kind of religious context now or probably about someone like Jose Mourinho when he was winning the Europa League and he was actually glorious before he got sacked. But actually this sense of to be glorified is to make tangible is to radiate with light, is to turn the light on in the darkness, is majestic, is beautiful. You might have heard uh, the Hebrew word kavod, which means weightiness, heaviness. There's a sense that the glory is the God who is spirit, love, light, goodness itself, being so present that we can feel it, we can grasp it, we can see it. We are weighed down by it. And actually Jesus glorifies God in that he makes God known to us. I've heard it said that the central truth of the Gospels is not that Christ is God-like, but that God is Christ-like. That Jesus is the glory of God because he shows the face of God, because he is who God is. He reveals the character of God. He reveals that actually God is primarily good, is loving, is after us, is going to the margins, is going to the lost, is going to the least, is about speaking into the darkness and being light in that place. And it's a strange glory that Jesus has. He says, glorify me, and the glory that Jesus has is the cross. The way that Jesus ultimately reveals who the Father is, is through the loving sacrifice of the cross. Jesus says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, all whom you have given him. We're going to come to eternal life in just a second, but there's a sense of, This is the glory of God. This is the character of God revealed that he has given us eternal life. That the glory of God, the holiness of God is not shown in his separation, in his distance, in his otherness. When we think of glory and we think of holiness, they're words that describe ways that God is what we could never be in some ways. But actually Jesus says the way that God is glorified is through the cross. It's not through separation, but through communion through being with us, through togetherness, through saying, actually, be reconciled. Be reconciled to my Father. Come with me to my Father's house. That's how God is glorified. That's how he is revealed. But just as Jesus belongs to the Father, we belong to him. Jesus says to his Father, all you have given me. So just as Jesus calls out intimately, Father, we can call out intimately, Jesus, I belong to you. I am yours. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we don't see that phrase, eternal life. We see kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. And I think that's actually the equivalent. 
In Paul, we have the language, dikaiosune, righteousness, justification. There's this sense that eternal life is life that carries over into eternity. Life that is significant. Life that is weighty. Life that is soaked with the glory and goodness of God. Life that is defined by the heart and the character of God. And I'm going to pause here. This is where we really dig into, I think, the central part of this first part of Jesus' prayer, where Jesus is praying to his Father. Because he breaks down, what is eternal life? What is eternal life? Is eternal life a ticket for the afterlife? Is eternal life a space on a cloud with a harp with the other angels? Eternal life is to know you. Eternal life is to know you. It's to know the glory of God. It's to know the character of God. It's to know who he is, his goodness. To know his goodness is to experience his goodness. To know his love is to be loved. But it's not just to know you. It's to know you and know the one you sent. Not just who God is, but what he does. Not just his character, but his action. And I think that kind of gets to the heart of the way that Jesus prays to God and the way that I think we today should learn to draw near to God in 2019. Intimacy and obedience. To know the character of God and to know the action of God. To be intimate with who God is and to be obedient to what he is doing. In fact, actually, I think this is the engine of prayer. Intimacy and obedience. Intimacy and obedience. I think what we often make the engine of prayer is asking and receiving. We ask, we receive, we ask, we receive. And often that seems like a disappointing thing because sometimes we ask and we don't receive. So we ask again and we partly receive and we ask and then Mourinho is sacked and Solskjaer comes and it's kind of answered in a different way and we ask and we receive. But actually that isn't the engine of prayer. That's almost the road that we're traveling on. That's life, that situation, that circumstance. Jesus says, if you ask, you will receive. But actually when he says that, He's talking about us receiving God himself, us receiving who God is, receiving the Holy Spirit. The engine of prayer is intimacy and obedience, to know God and know what he's doing, to know his face and to know his hand. And we see this then in how Jesus concludes this section of the prayer. The sense of intimacy, Jesus says, uh, in verse 5, we'll do them in reverse order, but, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This sense of togetherness with God. They share the same glory. They share the same existence. They say, share the same character, the same being, the same essence. There's a theological word for this, perichoresis, this mutual indwelling, Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus. That word, uh, the second half of that word, choresis, is where we get the word choreography. And some people have characterized that as a dance. There's movement, there's grace, there's beauty, there's a, there's a love and a relationship and a passion there. And actually, that is how Jesus characterizes his relationship with God, the Father, intimacy. And then in this prayer, he passes that on to us. He knows that he belongs to God, and he knows that we belong to him. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that over the next couple of weeks. But then we see the obedience in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
Jesus finishes the work that the Father has given him to do. If anyone on this planet ever had the right to strike off on their own and do what they thought was right, surely it was sinless Jesus, right? And yet he says, I finished the work that you gave me to do. I danced with you. I took on your purpose and your plan. Intimacy and obedience characterizes Jesus' relationship with the Father and should characterize our prayer life and our relationship with God in 2019. So how do we cultivate this? How do we cultivate intimacy and obedience? Because I say those words and probably no one disagrees with them. We can often convict ourselves that maybe our prayer life is based around more asking and receiving or I know I feel like actually a lot of my prayer time gets taken with intercession, and that's good. But there is also a sense that actually just to know God and know his plans is at the heart of Jesus' prayer. And I want to be like Jesus. I want to be a disciple, a follower of his. I think there's two ways we get intimacy and obedience. Through rhythms and rest. Rhythms and rest. Rhythms and rest. Rhythms is just the time given to wake up in the morning and pray to God, to have those rhythms in your week of when you go to the quiet place and you meet with God. There's been loads of scientific studies about how prayer makes us healthier mentally, socially, physically. People who pray often have lower rates of heart disease. Incredible thing. But some of that is about us orientating ourselves with rhythm. And we don't pray just for the health benefits We pray for the soul benefits, right? It's probably good for our body because God made our bodies. And when we draw near to him, how can that be but a blessing? But actually, if you want to get intimate with God, there is no shortcut for time. If you want to get to know someone, if you want to start a relationship, if you want to maintain your relationship, if I don't want to maintain my marriage with Rachel, there's no shortcut for time. There's no shortcut to just being together. So what can you take up in 2019? It's not too late to make a a resolution. It's not too late to be more resilient this year in prayer. What can you take up? At the tail end of last year, I I had two, three months where I asked Rod if I could just come in on a Friday morning, just have like three, four hours in the prayer room. I don't like to shout about my prayer life and talk about it, but I feel like it's important when we talk uh, about prayer. And just that rhythm of actually carving out a whole morning a week was really soul-giving for me. I've got a four-year-old who is a noisy, noisy man who wants a lot of my attention and time. Some of you have families. Some of you have to work really early in the morning. There isn't a set, God listens to you more at five o'clock in the morning than he does at 11 o'clock at night. But you need to have that rhythm. You need to have that rhythm of drawing near to God, of not neglecting him, drawing close to him. And then rest. When we often talk about obedience to God, we often think about what things we can take up, what things can we do. But actually, obedience biblically again and again and again is what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to rest from? Moving from send me to do something to show me what you're doing and let me rest in your perfect plan. Lots of pastors that I meet Uh, when I asked them how they are, answer, busy. I didn't ask them what they were doing. I asked them how they were. I asked them about their being. I met with a 
a Catholic priest, and I asked him how he was doing, and he said, grateful. And I thought, that's a better answer. Grateful. So actually, where is the rhythms of rest? Where is the rhythms of giving up, of being satisfied, of having done enough? of not feeling like we still have to do more, we have to prove more, we have to fight more in our ministry, in our work, in our family. Where is the obedience of resting in God, of trusting in him? So if rhythms, I ask you, what this year can you take up? Rest, I ask you this year, what can you give up? What is God asking you to give up this year? To lay before him as a beautiful sacrifice. We'll come to the rest of Jesus' prayer in the next couple of weeks, but this week I just want us to think intimacy and obedience, rhythms and rest. What can we take up? What can we give up this year? I'm going to sing an intimate song of worship. It's really simple, really repetitive, um, all about how we are made for communion with God. Should we stand and sing it together? And then we'll finish. <laughs>